You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job. And we have to find out, who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling, because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. I'm Bethany McLean. This is Making a Killing. In this show, I cut through the hype and hand-wringing to reframe the stories you thought you understood and uncover the ones you didn't know were important. I love industry makers. No one sees a new industry coming, and then, seemingly overnight, it's a way of life. The iPhone was an industry maker for mobile smartphones. The Prius was an industry maker for hybrid cars. You can argue Elon Musk's Tesla was an industry maker for electric cars, and so on. It seems to me that there's always a cycle. After a few false starts from two early inventors, we get that one company that blows us all away and makes a new industry. Then, as fast as you can say knockoff, there are competitors, fierce competitors. After this Hunger Games-style elimination period, the strong remain standing and make themselves part of our everyday existence. I have with me today Mark Rampola, who has been at the forefront of not one, but two industry-making companies. The first was his own company, Zico Coconut Water, which birthed an $8 billion alternative beverage coconut water industry. His book, High Hanging Fruit, tells the whole dramatic story. 
The next was Beyond Meat, where Mark has been involved as an investor rather than as a founder or CEO. Beyond Meat is the poster child for the plant-based food revolution. I knew we had reached peak alt meat, not when Beyond Meat had a monster IPO in May of 2019, but when a few months later, Dunkin' Donuts rolled out the Beyond Sausage plant-based breakfast sandwich in partnership with Beyond Meat. Then came the Impossible Burger. Even long-established Tyson, Tyson, has come out with raised and rooted plant-based nuggets. Oh, and then there's Kellogg's Morningstar Farms, which has announced a line called, wait for it, Incognito. I can't decide if that's clever or just awful, but giggles aside, analysts say there's serious money in plant-based alternatives. Currently, the market is $14 billion in the U.S., and Barclays estimates that it could balloon to $140 billion in the next decade. Mark has unique insight into what it means to be the pioneering brand that then quickly gets copied. Is there such a thing as first mover advantage? And if so, how do you hang on to it? And are meat alternatives really the way of the future? I'm recording this here in the home of the In-N-Out Burger, California, and I'm delighted to have Mark here with me. So what's it like, Mark, to be at the vanguard of a new industry for the second time? I really hadn't thought about it that way. It's pretty amazing to be a part of that. When I first started launching Zico, it was just a coconut water. I had no idea. I had some dreams, some hopes, some aspirations, but really had no idea when I look back and think that it's now an eight, probably $10 billion global category. It's absolutely amazing. And Beyond Meat, similarly, it's a, an amazing story to be a part of this whole plant-based revolution. So did you see it this time because of your experience with Zico? Did you see that Beyond Meat was going to be creating this industry-making revolution? Is it different in that respect? Or was it just, this is a great product? It is. It, it's a little different. I think experience I, during that period of having started Zico and then investing in Beyond Meat through my fund, Power Plant Ventures, I'd looked at a couple thousand companies. And so I think developed- A couple thousand? A couple thousand. Wow. Yeah. yeah we look as a fund about a hundred a month new upstart, early staged food and beverage, food service, food tech companies. Okay. So you have to pause on that without divulging any competitive information. Can you give me a feel for the weirdest idea you've heard oh my or the God. most revolutionary? Yeah. So some people are really fanatical about this, but the whole insect side of things, uh, right. I'm, I'm not buying it yet. I'm not chewing on it yet. I'm <laughs> not. It's look, it's interesting, right? There's a lot of parallels. People do eat them all across the world, all sorts of reasons. There's an environmental reason. There's a social impact reason. But at this day and time, I don't think Americans are ready for it. And so that's a little out there. And we've seen some ones that are that are pretty odd. And that you have passed on. Yes. Okay. How did Beyond Meat come to you and what made you say, yes, this? So a couple of things. One, my partners actually in Power Plant had known uh, Ethan Brown, the founder, from day one and, and had an opportunity to invest. They passed because they owned a restaurant chain called Veggie Grill and viewed it as sort of a conflict of interest. It's one of the reasons we started the fund. I was seeing a lot of deals that we thought were interesting. And so Ethan was always on our radar. He was an extraordinary founder. And that's paramount for us. We always look for the individual. You know, great founders build great companies. Rarely do great companies just happen. And so Ethan was a winner from the beginning and Brent, his co-founder, but we didn't have a fund up and running. They went out and raised money. And when we finally had our fund up and ready and got a look at it, we knew this was really interesting, particularly because they had a number of products on the market that were good, but not great. And they were doing okay in Whole Foods and other places, but not exceptional. But when they rolled out what they call the Beyond Burger, 
we knew. The way we knew was we have you know relationships at Whole Foods. We're in the stores. We have people that we know at the stores. And through Veggie Grill, Veggie Grill was the first place that they sold the Beyond Burger. And we also literally saw the first week of sales in Whole Foods. That first week, it became the best-selling product in the whole store. Seriously, in the, the whole entire store. store, right? And Veggie Grill, in the first month that they rolled it out, it single-handedly brought, I think, double-digit same-store sales growth year over and, year. And why? What made the Beyond Burger so beyond? I think it's a couple of things, a couple of vectors that came together to make this happen. Still, the statistics are, you know, maybe 2 to 3% of the population is true hardcore vegan. Right. But I think in general, there's moved into the zeitgeist, this plant-based, plant-forward understanding to have more plants, you know, have Meatless Monday. That sort of has happened much more broadly than just Beyond Meat. And that's really been building for 30 years on three key areas. One is, so I think there's this general awareness about health and wellness and how particularly unhealthy, highly processed meats play a negative factor in that. The other is environmental and certainly humanitarian reasons, right? So those three are coming into more common thinking, particularly among millennials. And the product was very different think what you want about it relative to, you know, 99% of all the veggie burgers that have ever been on the market. It's a very different experience. And, you know, they're never going to compete with a Kobe beef burger, but (laughs) relative to a lot of the crap that's on the market in McDonald's, Burger King, and every college campus and high school around the country, those hamburgers are crap. What's the breakthrough? What makes the burger so so different? What they did is they applied existing technology, something that's called extrusion technology. It's used in a lot of food processes, used in other arenas, but had never been really applied to something like plant proteins. And so they use very available plant proteins, predominantly pea, but they can do, use other feedstocks. And they process it in a way... It sounds a little gross, but it's almost comes out like a meat grinder would, you know, where you, you get this this raw material that can then be formed into burgers. And so, yeah, there's some food science in there and engineering. A lot of chefs have been involved in creating that. And they brought something that's really amazing. And I think, for example, my wife has been plant-based for 20 years. You know, she had it and she's like, yeah, I don't miss meat. I do. I've only been plant-based for a few years. And so for me to get that sort of sensation and that feeling and be able to have a burger is something I miss. So that's the core thing, am I right, that makes what's going on now different than what's come before and that what's come before, veggie burgers, catering to people who are already vegetarian. This is a huge expanse of the market because this is a burger that is aimed at people who are meat eaters and want something that is comparable. And so suddenly you're going from niche to Every day. Is, is that the right idea? Absolutely. Okay. And I'll tell you specifically something that was fascinating. When they first rolled out that product, Ethan and, and Seth Golden, that became chairman of the board, were adamant. We want this in the meat section of the stores. Oh, really? They, they went to retailers and literally said, we will not sell it to you unless it goes right next to meat. Wow. And what was it like to try to convince retailers to do that? Because I'm I'm always interested in this gap, if you will, between great idea, wow, but then the dirty work of execution, right? Or the, or the gritty work is a better word than dirty work of execution. The first thing they did is they built a team that was extraordinary. So they built the sales team that had done this in the past with other categories, understands the way retailers think, what metrics they want to see, how to communicate with them. 
And I don't recall the exact details of the story, and I'm not sure I know all the details as an investor. But what my recollection is, and the way typically a company would do this, is you sit down with a Whole Foods, maybe a Target, maybe a Safeway, and you say, look, this is what we're trying to achieve. Do you want to get behind it? Whole Foods has a history of sort of being a leading edge. So typically they'll take a risk. And so the team went in and said to Whole Foods, look, if we're going to do this, we want to do it big. It's got to be right next to meat. It's disruptive. And Whole Foods took that risk. And once Whole Foods took the risk and you had data that you could share with other retailers, then literally the conversation is, Mr. Retailer, do you want the product or not? Some retailers held back. There's some major retailers in the country that were late to the Beyond Burger because they didn't want to put it. They wanted to put it in the frozen section or in the veggie burger section. And what was fascinating is I know that there were hardcore vegans sort of the vegan mafia, people say, that were furious with Beyond Meat because they said, I don't want to go near that section. I, I don't want to shop in that area. And to think that, talk about like somebody that wants to change the world, yet is worried about their own uncomfort zone versus the impact it can have to get not meat eaters to eat this. There's a hypocrisy in There's that, hypocrisy isn't there? That's in interesting. That. But that was also brave on Beyond Meat's part to take the risk of alienating what would have been a very safe and secure core consumer in order to say, no, 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 we're going after the world and we're changing the world, right? I mean, there's real bravery associated with you that. You nailed it. We infuriated a lot of early Bikram yoga fanatics when we started to sell <laughs> Zico everywhere. Like sort of by definition with these early adopter, there's rare exceptions like perhaps the iPhone, right? right. Where by and large, these products, these categories are built by early adopters. And sort of by definition, the early adopters onto the next thing, right? right? And so often that's the trend that happens. So is this a case of technological advancement? Is it modern technology that enables something like the Beyond Burger to be produced? Or was the technology over always there and nobody had just thought about doing it this way or conceiving of it in this way? The latter, maybe. The latter. There, there's okay. no earth-shattering, crazy new technology there. What is unique, and, and we're seeing this across a lot of the companies we look at, is applying a tech mindset to food. And there's a lot of pluses to that, and there's some negatives, but there is a general sense that anything's possible if you put time and effort and good brain power behind it, that you can come up with innovative solutions, that you start with a consumer and sort of work backwards on how to solve a problem. A lot of those mindsets are really only in the last 10 years or so applying in the food. And we're seeing that. We're seeing, you know, one of our biggest fans or sort of supporters is the, uh, director of alumni affairs for Stanford, who came to us and said, something's going on here because 10 years ago, all my top students that want to be entrepreneurs went into tech. Now they all want to go into food and it's all plant-based. Like what the hell is really? going on? Yeah. How long amazing. ago was that? But uh, two she, years. Oh, that's fascinating. That's yeah, fascinating. So you have this whole new mindset. So that's the mindset is, you know, Ethan's a wicked smart guy. Ethan Brown, born 10 or 20 years earlier, probably would have gone into tech. And he's or, going into a version of tech. Yeah. He is. He is. Or gone into social impact. He's a radical, you know, animal rights activist or not the nonprofit world. But but in today's day and age, there's an opportunity to sort of bridge those gaps and make a real impact through business. Before we we move on, you mentioned the positives and the negatives of this ability to process plants in a different way. And that is one of the criticisms I've heard of this plant or one of the marks of skepticism I've heard about this plant-based industry, which is, wait, how does this go with 
the notion of an unprocessed lifestyle if these things are so heavily processed? And is that what you mean by trade-offs? And how do you think about that? Absolutely. So look, what I'm very clear on and, and hope to work to, you know, myself and for our world is that we get as close as we can to the plants we eat, that they are in clean, healthy soil that is in a regenerative format, that the whole system is thoughtful about the soil, the forest, the ocean, and we are consuming food that is as nutrient-dense and close to the source as possible. That's the solution. That's the healthiest way to live, bar none. The reality is I don't eat that way. I have time, money, capability. I have and tried to garden for my entire life. And the reality is how often do I do it? How often am I eating that way? I have a fast-paced life. I'm moving. And so the reality is we make those compromises. And so you know, Ethan Brown actually talked about this recently. I think it was, I think it was Chipotle had refused to bring them in. At least this was as a few months or a year ago or so. One, one of the comments was, well, it's too highly processed, right? And Ethan's retort was something like, yeah, have you been in an industrialized uh, meat facility lately? Go in one of those, if they even let you in the door, and then come in my plant and let's talk. Because the reality is, yes, relative to a fresh picked squash and grinding your own lentils into a homemade veggie burger, like, of course, that's always going to be better. Relative to, probably make some enemies on this, I'm not going to try to use specific names, but there's a few big food service companies that sell these patties that are everywhere, right? They're every college, high school, most fast food restaurants use these frozen patties that are not food. The amount of meat in them is questionable. The fillers, the way they do that. Then you start to work your way down the meat supply chain. How are they treated? What kind of antibiotics are they pumped with? Where are they raised? Then, you know, you talk economically. We're subsidizing the water. We're subsidizing the land. We subsidize the corn. That is a disaster. So you're talking about, in my mind, is a, is a massive relative improvement. It's massive. Now, my recommendation with people is, have it once a week, you know, have it occasionally, right? Substitute a hamburger occasionally, substitute uh, some fish occasionally for this. It's a, it's a delightful, healthy alternative relative to other things on one's journey to a better way of eating. That's so interesting. I think a lot about this of relative versus absolute. Does something need to be perfect and solve every single problem out there, or does it just need to move us in the right direction? Progress, not perfection. Progress, not perfection. I, I like that line. On that note, is the product as good as it could be yet? Is there room for more improvement? Absolutely. Can you make the Beyond Burger even better? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, okay. these guys are tweaking day in and day out and I think making major improvements. I know they're looking at alternative protein sources. We, as a fund, are working closely with them to actually use credible data to measure and think about their impact. Because you want to talk about things like carbon emissions, water utilization, land utilizations. There's no comparison. You're talking 100x improvement with something like that, but they're going beyond that. What's interesting is that the traditional meat industry has had a response to this that is unlike what the dairy industry did in the sense that the dairy industry didn't see this coming, right? And they've lost share to these alternative milk products and been caught flat-footed. And the meat industry is responding differently. 
Do you think they learned a lesson from Derry? I have the good fortune to engage with a number of very, very, very senior executives at many of the food beverage companies, including some of the meat companies. They're rational, smart people. Most of them want to do the right thing and are trying to figure out how to navigate it. You know, they they have a shareholder base. They have self-interest. All those things are aligned. And I think they're rational. They recognize and see these trends and are afraid of getting caught flat-footed. And so, yeah, they've seen other industries blow up, other companies blow up, and I think they know it can happen to them too. Do you ever get out there and taste competitors' products just knowing you're not an investor anymore? But, I mean, if you eat a Beyond Burger, can you tell it's not an Impossible Burger? Absolutely. And you can tell it's not an Incognito, whatever, whatever? Okay. Those couple ones, at least, they're pretty distinct, and distinction's good. And, you know, one of the points, one of our theses in general is competition builds categories, right? It's yeah, Beyond Meat alone would not be where it is if there wasn't impossible. That's just how these things work. Because one spurs the other to be better, to do better. And people talk about it. They compare. Retailers hear about it. Consumers, reporters, everybody's talking about it. It sort of creates this hype and interest, and they support each other. Funders compete, and it just sort of creates an ecosystem. Back to this notion, with, with Zico, you did eventually sell to Coke. Beyond Meats took an investment from Tyson, right? And so did you think, and then Tyson ended up selling and launching its own competitive product. How did you think about that or help them navigate that based on your experience? What are the pros and cons of letting your monster competitor into what you're doing, knowing that they can then take that and go off and do their own thing? It's a very delicate balance. And to be really clear, our role and my personal role in Beyond Meat has been relatively right. minor. You know, I'm very, very close with Seth and Ethan, and but they've got some great counsel and are great advice. But I'll tell you the way we generally approach this with a variety of companies and the kind of conversations we had with them, which is, look, ultimately it's about where are you going? What's your individual and company you know, mission and objective? And how do you define success? So we encourage entrepreneurs to be comfortable with the fact that, look, do you want to grow this and run this forever and pass it down to your kids? Do you want to scale it across the world? Do you want to you know, make some money and retire and go start a nonprofit? Do you, you know, what do you want? What do you want to get out of this? And, and I think Ethan had a big vision for this from the beginning. He wanted to change the world. And so given that and given the industry and the way they were operating, it was going to take a lot of capital. And so they raised a lot of money from some big professional investors, and we felt fortunate to be able to support multiple times along the way. But this Tyson conversation, along with other strategics, is a delicate one. Yes. Typically, if an entrepreneur is expecting that relationship to solve all their problems, they're wrong. (laughs) So it's not their expertise. Rarely can they bring that. And rarely do entrepreneurs have the capability or sophistication to know how to manage that, right? It takes a very sophisticated entrepreneur to understand the way a corporation works and how to garner resources and engage. So every major food company on the planet right now is looking at this world, trying to decide if they're in it. Does it make sense? Should they be in it? Do they have the right to be in it? Can they pull it off? They're all looking at it. It's a complicated set of issues and nuance that you then have to decide, sort of pick your path forward. You tell me how unique this is, but one fascinating dynamic to this industry to me is you almost want your competitors' products to be really good because if what you're trying to do is not go after a niche, but you're trying to change the way people think, mainstream consumers think about plant-based alternatives, then you want everyone who picks up a plant-based alternative to have a really good experience with it because then they're a potential, they're a new customer. Whereas if they have a bad experience, even with a competitor's product, they may say, yeah, 
not doing this again. You kind of want your competitor's products to be good. Maybe not quite as good as yours, but good, right? Am I right about that? You, my friend, have the intuition of an entrepreneur. (laughs) And this is something very few people get. I run into entrepreneurs that say, oh, our competitor's products are crap. Ours is so much better. And the first thing that goes through my mind, sometimes I tell them this, sometimes I don't, is First of all, don't disrespect anyone. There's right. no reason to do right. that, right? Didn't really your mom isn't. teach you that, right? And second of all, you want them to be good because you want consumers' experiences. It's all the reasons you're saying that. So absolutely, competitions builds categories. And so when you have a healthy competition and people are improving and innovating, it's good for everyone if you're a great executor, right? Yep. If you're not a great executor, you don't deserve to win anyway. And did you learn this in Zico as hundreds of competitors, maybe not hundreds, maybe I'm exaggerating, but a lot of competitors popped up really quickly. What did you wrestle with as that happened? What I wrestled with is, first of all, we had one major competitor out of the gate, which was Vitacoco, and they launched literally within weeks of us. <laughs> it was wow. amazing. And were they already working on it or was it a quick copy? Clearly they were working they on it. Yeah, working it's on one of these, you know, okay. when, the, when the timing's right for a variety of reasons, rarely is any one innovation just standalone. So I hated it. And, uh, Mike Kerbin, the founder of Vitacoco, has become a good friend of mine, but I, I hated him. I'm sure he hated me out of the gate. Yet, I don't think we realized how dependent we were on each other. What really frustrated me was it didn't take long within, I'd say, six or seven years, there were 85 coconut waters on the 85 market. coconut 85 waters? in the oh, U.S. Man. alone. Oh, man, that's a lot of coconut and water. And I can remember thinking, come on, people, can't you be innovative? Go do something else. <laughs> right, make nut water. Yeah, absolutely. But the reality Acorn is, water. yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the reality is what I knew was from, I don't take a lot of research to figure this out. One category that always fascinated me was energy drinks. There's 100 plus energy drinks on the market. But Red Bull and Monster have captured, my, this data is outdated, but probably 10 years ago, this data was legitimate. of the market of the enterprise value of the category. Wow. So you don't have to be first, but if you're not, and there's a risk of being too early, sort of bleeding edge, but typically the top two to three competitors capture the vast majority of the value of consumers, retailers, strategics, exits, whatever it is. How do you stay top? If being first doesn't guarantee that you're going to stay top, how do you stay at the top? Execution, 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 execution. There is no substitute for great talent, great people that just are obsessed every day with getting better. And look, I applaud and love, and it's one of the reasons I I love my job because, you know, there's people that are way better than me running businesses for 5, 10, 20 years and thinking day in and day out about efficiencies and operations and marketing, innovation, and sales, and people, and getting that whole orchestra aligned around continuing to be relevant. And never getting complacent. Never getting complacent. Which I suppose is one good thing about competition, right? It certainly does stop you from complacency. So back to Beyond Meat's IPO, it's obviously been just phenomenally successful. With that came short sellers, people saying the stock was overvalued. How do you think about managing that dynamic, especially for employees where it's, I, I would think it would be hard not to have some, and founders, not to have some sense of how you feel about the world tied up in how your stock price is doing. And if it goes down 40% over something or another, how do you process that emotionally? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we certainly lived through that even as investors, let alone, right. you know, as, as employees seeing the stock go up to 
you know, 200 and back down, I think 85. I was giggling one headline the other day when the stock fell on worries about increased competition was that Beyond Meat stock got butchered. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's some fun. At least there's some good puns in this. But anyway, back to to your point. You can have some fun with that category. There's no question about it. Yeah, look, I think that one difference with Beyond Meat versus the tech industry has lived through this fortunes made or lost on paper all the time. One difference is the vast majority of people that went to work or work at Beyond Meat are there in no small part because of the mission. Ethan just, he lives and breathes it. He communicates it. He lives this lifestyle. And he created this ethos where we are on a mission. And so I know a ton of employees there and talk to them regularly during this process. And of course, they're excited. You know, their emotions are up and down. I was saying the same thing. How is this? This must be tough. How's it going? And they all had a mindset that this was all noise. It was exciting. It was interesting. But nobody believed that $200 was going to hold forever, right? Really? They were able to stay rational even in the face of exuberance to to sort of mangle in a famous Alan Greenspan (laughs) phrase. Absolutely. I think, again, it starts at the top. Ethan's an amazing, rational person. Seth Goldman, the chairman of the board, is is amazing and rational, lived through some up and downs. And I think, yeah, they were communicating throughout this, hey, we're building a company that's going to last and live forever. And, you know, I'm not privy to all the inside communication they had, but, you know, stories I heard were about, look, they're building one of the next great food brands, an iconic brand. It might be the next Kellogg or Tyson or something like that. Stocks go up, stocks go down, companies live forever. That's really interesting that the mission can help you stay honest and focused in the face of a stock price that Beyond Meat has seen. I also thought it's interesting because I've often repeated over the years that a company is not its stock price. They, They are two different things. And yet, in a weird way, Beyond Meat stock price has almost been branding or furtherance of the mission in a really interesting way in the sense that what the stock did made everybody say there's really something here and brought attention to Beyond Meat in a way that I think has accomplished a lot. Does that sound right Absolutely. to you? Absolutely. Look, because I do think I think about the accomplishments on a couple levels. One, just building a new company. That's amazing. Building a company that's plant-based burgers is extraordinary, right? Building a come the next Tyson Foods is amazing. But what this did is showed us, and I think a lot of other investors and entrepreneurs, that there's an appetite in the public markets for what people generally called ESG. We have the fortune to deal in our fund with some massive global investors. I can tell you it's on 80% of them, they care about this. Many of them care about it because the people that are running the funds are 40, 45 years old, right? Right. They've come of a new generation. They also know millennials have money or investing money in the funds that care about these things. And so I think there's a massive shift happening in our capital markets, which is fascinating to see and I think can unleash massive potential because when all of a sudden you have these institutional investors that are at least asking the question and thinking about it, that's amazing. And so Beyond Meat was one of the first public stocks that people could point to and both say, hey, it's a cool company. It's a product that I can touch and feel. And it's a mission I can believe in and I can invest behind it. And look at the money I can make it as it goes back to your broader point about practicality over purity and the sense that you could say, 
well, these people should be doing sustainability because that's the right thing to do. But yet you have this interesting confluence between sustainability because it's the right thing to do, because that's where the money is, because it's the right thing to do. You can see how it, the mixture of those two things can actually create a virtuous circle. That's and it's, exactly what I believe. And it's just, I think I've come more and more to just accept that to expect people to change too radically is unreasonable. I believe we're at a point of crisis as a species on this planet, and that is in part our food system, our energy system, and that the core of that is capitalism. And that the, if we're going to change that, it's got to be aligned with, with the way people live. And that's possible. That makes a ton of sense. So when the CEO of Impossible Foods talks about a goal of eliminating animal products from the global food supply by 2035, does that fit into the category of realistic or is that idealistic? Let's call that ambitious. ambitious. <laughs> it's a bold, you know, it's, it's a BHAG, right? Yep. And I love those. I think they're great. I think for his company, that's perfect. It's not going to happen. There's always going to be a place. And, and look, I, I have a lot of friends that are, will argue, you know, with me all the, all day long about this. And yeah, the reality is a small farm with well-treated animals that are fed on organic food and are harvested or used in rational ways, I have a hard time arguing that. It's not my choice, and I can still have an ethical question about that, but I can understand that as a model. The reality is that's not a model for the rest of the world. And if we move a modest way towards some of these goals, it's a big deal. I do think there's some time, whether it's 50 years, 100 years, or 1,000 years, where we will look at animals and look back and be amazed we ate them. We'll be amazed at the way we treated them. And we treated there, them. There were a couple of words that have been invented to describe, I think, what you're talking about, which I liked. One is, so let's see if I can say them, flexitarianism. Yes. And then the other, which I really liked, reducetarianism, right? Yes. Just yes. along the, the notion that progress is important rather than perfection. Have you guys struggled either with Beyond Meat or in any of your other investments with some of the pushback from the big meat interests in this country in the sense that they've gotten laws passed that you can't use the word meat unless it comes from an animal? And there's been pushback from other lobbying groups about the idea that this is healthy in order to just preserve their market share. And do you guys worry or get angry about that corporate power, or that degree of moneyed power? Look, corporate interests in general in our country anger me and annoy me. I accept them as a reality and as a challenge. And I think most great entrepreneurs and investors do. Like these guys are, you know, they're spitting in the wind. It's just, it's inevitable. And so time is on our side. And the challenge really is building a business in and around and twist and turn. So you change the name so you have fun with it. And I'll give you one great example. There's a company, the company has had some challenges, but fascinating entrepreneur and interesting story. Uh, Just, uh, this was Hampton Creek. Yeah. So when right. they rolled out this Mayo product, they got sued by a couple of the big mayonnaise companies. They took the social media and kids and college kids across the country adopted their cause. And in a month, the, the big mayonnaise companies were out of, you know, numerous college campuses across the country. So it just, it just bit them in the ass. Oh, my God. I love this story for another reason, which is social media is a force for good instead of social media as an engine of our mutual assured destruction, right? Yeah. There are occasions, right? It's, uh, it's, how, it's how it's used, and, and they, but, but it can There's an be. exception to every rule, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. So have you seen anything over your career now? Have, 
you've come to believe more strongly in this idea of mission and economics. And I was struck by a speech you gave, I think it was a couple of years ago, about doing good is, is, is good business. Are there things you've seen that counter that, that make it hard for you to maintain your, your, your faith in this? Or have you become more of a believer that these things are both possible? I have this conflict every day and I fight the battle. And there's days where I feel like I'm kidding myself that part of the problem flying around the world to find businesses and try to change this. And um, every flight I take is, you know, more carbon emissions, right? right? Investing in these great companies and most of our investors are already very wealthy people. So I, I think the difference now is I can recognize those and I choose my battles. And so what I recognize is I have a choice, right? I can detach from the world and, you know, go, go live on a farm somewhere and you know, raise my own plants, try to live as low impact. And really garden, put and those gar- skills to Absolutely. Work. And live as low an impact life as possible. Or I can fight within the system. And that fight for me is, is a soft one. So what I feel is if I can talk to a young entrepreneur and ask them about their mission, ask them about their impact, ask them about their supply chain, ask them about their employees. Do you know where your food comes from? Tell me about the employees of your co-packer. Like if they start thinking, oh my God, an investor is asking me these things. I better go figure it out. That changes things, right? That's very powerful to be the person with money asking the important questions. Yes. And then when companies are scaling, what I can ask them is, look, if you sell this company, And that's part of your goal. How do you make sure the mission is so core to the DNA that the corporations aren't going to be able to screw it up? Because corporations are generally generally pretty smart, pretty rational, filled with good people that are trying to do the right thing. If the core of the brand is so strong, it will endure. I'm amazed that Zico in the Coke system, the brand's phenomenal. The product's honestly in some ways better than it was in terms of quality and sustainability and social impact. But it's because the core of the DNA, the DNA of the brand was strong enough. And so if you build in checks and balances in your supply chain, most likely a strategic is going to keep a lot of those in place. It's not perfect, but so I can challenge on that front. And the other front I can challenge on is investors. I can sit in front of some of the wealthiest, most successful investors in the world and tell them why this matters, why our food system is disrupted, why it needs to be rebuilt from the bottom up, why that creates an economic opportunity for you, and you can also improve the planet, health and wellness, and have some humanitarian impact all at the same time. You're giving me faith that maybe the world really is moving to a different place, because I would have expected that Zico and the Coca-Cola system, that they would have started trying to save money by reducing some of the costs in the supply chain in a way that would have been problematic. Honestly, look, I'm not I'm not involved anymore, but I hear plenty, and I you know, check in, and 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 I'll give you one one little example. I, I know, you know, the team in, in Thailand that manages the supply chain, there's a, a woman-owned farm that I developed a relationship and began sourcing from her when there was nothing. Like, it was a teeny little shed. They were gathering some coconuts and cracking them open. She's got, like, 300 employees now or something like that. And wh- one thing I know is that when you're clear about what is non-negotiable, a great strategic supply chain will look at those things and do it right. Now, if they're throwing coconut water into another, into Coke, you know, someday, eh, you know, who knows how they'll do it. But thus far, at least, the integrity of the brand is 
strong. And we see that generally when brands get acquired. Whether the strategics do well with it or not is a totally different story. Isn't that interesting? I guess to your point about working within the system, maybe the key if you're going to work within the system is to have certain things that are non-negotiable and to know what those are and to also have your consumers absolutely understand what's non-negotiable so that if there's pressure on those points, your consumers know to push back. That's exactly right. Identifying those non-negotiables are important for any entrepreneur. They're important in life, right? Right. I'm sure you have them in your business world, in, in, in your career. And I think we all play our part. I think what I've come to terms with is part of me would have loved to do what you're doing. I think what you did on Enron was absolutely amazing. And to highlight these issues in, in another life, I'd love to do that sort of work, be sort of a calling out from the outside, pointing out and, and bringing it to light, these real problems we have. That's not my skill set. I can't do that. I thought maybe I would run a global corporation someday and, and make a big impact at that level. That's not my calling. This is my calling. Well, to take a, something that didn't exist and have a farmer in Thailand, a woman farmer in Thailand with 300 employees, I'd say is a pretty enormous, even if that were it, and you stopped there, that's a pretty enormous. But, thank you. Thank you. Know, you. And I do want to just qualify. I can't quite quote that fact exactly. Well, whatever. <laughs> order, of <laughs> order of magnitude well, is hundreds, fine. Yeah. Okay. Before we close, I just want, you said this about building Zico. Be ready to spend a decade of your life to dig deeper than you ever knew was possible to give until it hurts and then give some more and still you may not succeed if you are willing to go for it then you'll be amazed at the impact you can make was there a moment with zico that you felt like maybe i should quit and how do you know to persevere pretty much every day for the first five years i woke up in the morning and had a mantra which was purely intended to keep me going which was little things like, all I ever need is inside me now. <laughs> I, used to, I used to take runs and tell myself, everyone loves Zico. Everyone loves Zico. Everyone loves Zico. That's when, a great mantra. When I no like one that. in the world was drinking Zico, right? There were 10 yoga studios in New York. I wanted to quit a lot. And one of the things I, I was afraid, I was terrified, didn't think I was up to it. I had made all these excuses for myself. And, and uh, fortunately, I had to a certain extent, boxed myself in. I'd put every penny we had into the company. I'd moved my family to New York. I'd quit my job. I'd taken money from my sister, my mother-in-law, friends. I'll never forget one day, I actually you know, went to my wife at some point and I'm like, look, if you're done, I actually got a job offer to move back to El Salvador with the corporations, run a big operation. It would have been more money, you know, move into the same house, get our same life back. We got it all back in a month. And I said, you want to, are you done? You want to do it? And she said, "Eh, let's give it another year. Life is so much the people that you surround yourself with, but also that a certain amount of perseverance is just getting in too deep to get out, right? (laughs) And also showing up. Just half the battle, show up every day. Well, thank you so much for a great conversation. And I'm going to go have a Beyond Burger for lunch. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Bethany. I expected to talk about, well, meat and not meat, as well as the promise and peril of inventing a new industry. Mark and I did that, but I was even more struck by the bigger themes in this conversation. For instance, purity versus practicality. The former is for sure more ideologically appealing, and Mark's comments about how vegans were angry that Beyond Meat wanted to be sold in the meat area were indicative of the clarion call of purity. But by being practical, Beyond Meat has more of a chance to change the world. 
Nor is this the first time any of us have encountered the idea of working within the system. That can be code for selling out. But if you establish your non-negotiables, maybe there's no such thing as selling out, even if you literally do sell out. Anyway, food for thought. Last pun, I promise. Making a Killing is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Chalk and Blade. It's produced by Ruth Barnes and Laura Hyde. My executive producers are Allison McLean, No Relation, and Megan Casey. The executive producer at Pushkin is Mia Lobel. Engineering by Jason Rostkowski. Our music is by Jed Flood. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin and everyone on the show. I'm Bethany McLean. Thanks so much for listening. Find me on Twitter at BethanyMac12 and let me know which episodes you've most enjoyed. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, "This this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.